What people have slowly been finding is that the genetics of flies seem to be heavily conserved. There are a number of studies showing that serotonin and dopamine and all these basic molecules that you think of as human sleep have a major role in fly sleep. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Keith Murphy, welcome to my podcast, Human OS Radio. Tell our audience where you work and the type of research you do. I work at the Scripps Research Institute in Florida. I'm a graduate student as part of a, an integrative program in neurobiology at Florida Atlantic University. Um, and I work in the laboratory at William Ja. In terms of what we do, our lab, among all the labs here, is really diverse. So we not only study sleep, which you know we can talk about today, but we also do feeding behavior and mating behavior and generally how behaviors seem to affect health and, and lifespan. Tell us how you got into sleep research. Yeah, so it was actually 10 years ago that it was discovered that the fruit fly, which is an extremely simple organism, seemed to conserve the basic features of sleep, like how deeply they sleep, that it was important for memory, that they would regain it when they lost it. And Bill, primarily before recently, had just worked on feeding behavior. So when I joined his lab, he was developing a device that could tell us exactly when fruit flies were eating and how much they were eating um, mm. by using these small little capillaries where we basically just machine vision track how much fluid was drawing into the fly. Mm. And, you know, originally we were just looking at feeding behavior, but because flies had been developed as a really good model for figuring out how sleep worked, he said, well, what if we could pair this feeding behavior or this feeding measurement with exactly when flies were sleeping and, and would we find something interesting there? So I was sort of the first segment of the lab into sleep behavior, but um, it's gone pretty well. A friend of mine, Paul Shaw, probably familiar with him. He does work at Washington St. Louis. He was an early person to the fruit fly sleep paradigm and made some great contributions there. I think a lot of people are surprised that fruit flies have any sort of relevance to us. But just like you described, they seem to consolidate sleep. Is it that they have a certain set of genes that make their behavior and physiology somewhat relevant to us? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, in fact, I just talked to Paul pretty recently, and he was one of if not the major proponent of studying fly sleep with the Tononi lab. Yeah. And really, of course, because they're fruit flies, there's going to be basic differences in sort of the architecture of sleep. But what people have slowly been finding is that the genetics of flies seem to be heavily conserved. So yeah. uh, there are a number of studies showing that serotonin and dopamine and all the basic molecules that you think of with human sleep have a major role in fly sleep. And the valence of this are whether or not serotonin drives sleep positively or inhibits it seem to be pretty conserved. So I guess since the fly has come up, we've learned not only that they conserve some of these features, but on top of that, we're starting to learn new things. For instance, a work of Paul's that was really interesting, I forget, it was like 2005 or something it was published, is that heat shock proteins, which is something that is critical for stress response in mammals, seem to be really important in actually regulating whether or not we accumulate sleep loss. Mm. So I thought that was a really nice example of a, a human gene that was now shown to affect sleep because fruit flies are so easy to study, genetically speaking. When you use the word conserved, for those who aren't familiar with it, can you explain what that means? Conserved just basically means, does the gene encode a protein, which is sort of the fundamental functional unit of a cell, which makes up our body? 
does the animal have a very similar looking gene that makes that protein and does the protein work in a similar way? In humans, yeah. Yeah, in humans. So can we find something useful from using it in flies? Is this the first study that you had done looking at sleep in Bill's lab? Yeah, so this is the first of hopefully what will be many. You know, we've been working on a number of of studies that show how sleep and feeding integrate. Mm -hmm. Um, And this just happened to be, you know, one of the first things that came up and maybe one of the more interesting things. But we'll definitely be having other studies that show the importance of metabolic function and sleep regulation coming out pretty soon. Um, But this was definitely the first. Tell us about the study a little bit. Give us a little more detail so we can understand what you did. Yeah, sure. So in humans, and this is something that was surprising. Actually, maybe I'll just talk about what we found first. So by pairing together high-resolution measurement of feeding in the fly and also measuring the sleep of the flies, and again, this is on an individual level, so flies are basically just walking around an environment and machine vision tracking is telling us, okay, did the fly eat a meal? And what did the sleep look like before and after in a short window? And what we found consistently over and over again was that the fly seemed to exit some probability of sleep when it goes to eat. And right after eating, it experienced much more sleep and that this lasted for about 40 minutes. And, you know, it was something we sort of almost expected because anecdotally, everybody kind of talks about this food coma type behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, I ate a ton of food today and I'm really tired. So we sort of just thought, okay, well, this is just saying that the fruit fly is relevant for this behavior. And when we went and looked at the human literature, we really only found about four or five studies that had really even attempted to see it in humans. Mm -hmm. And something that you've probably faced and a lot of people face is that it's really difficult to resolve subtle behaviors in humans. So if something is not 100% concrete, you not only have that, but every human in the study is slightly different. So it just creates this big variability that makes it hard to measure. So to no fault of their own, studies really didn't show 100% that the behavior was actually occurring. And the fact that they were really unable to see it with high resolution made it really difficult to study the behavior. So once we saw that, we decided, okay, well, let's use the fly to investigate how this behavior works, food coma type effect. How do you measure sleep in the fruit fly? There's actually... A number of methods you can go for. The first and fastest method is just to track how they're moving and you can track their posture at the same time. Mm. And from the original papers, it was shown that with some probability, as a fly is immobile, you know, the likelihood that it is asleep becomes increasing to the point where it's about 100% at five minutes. So, really, the rough measure is just to say, you know, is the fly moving or not? And the second measure, which we go into in the paper, is to actually deliver vibrations to the chamber and to ask, Mm. well, how much does it take to wake the fly up? Mm. So this is sort of analogous to, you know, if you're sleeping at your desk and your friend pokes you very gently, you might not wake up. But if they punch you in the arm, yes, now you'll wake up. So what we can do in the flies, we actually take these little motors from cell phones and we attach them to the back of the chamber and we ramp up the vibration and we ask, at what point? does the fly begin to respond to this vibration? Mm. And a, a fly that's asleep will, will usually respond to very high vibrations, where a fly that's awake will respond almost immediately, even with a gentle vibration. Oh, okay. How creative. Yeah, it's pretty fun, some of the tools we get to go at. Yeah, that's really neat. There's one more just to really convince people yeah. who are listening, is that you can actually record from the fly brain while they run around on like a ping pong ball. It's kind of like a treadmill for people. 
Hmm. And that's when you can really see their brain activity downshift as they sleep. But that's something you can't do on any high throughput screen. So if there's a lot of animals you need to look at, mm-hmm. you know, it would be impossible to do. But that would be sort of the last, just so you guys know. <laughs> so it's like the equivalent to actigraphy in humans, which is looking at movement. Yeah. Right? And activity for anybody that is listening that's not familiar with that term. It's how Fitbit and other quantified self devices will measure if you're sleeping or not. It's just assessing movement and then predicting whether or not you're in sleep or not, or what stage of sleep that you're in. And that's been well validated and used in clinical research for quite a long time. Uh, It has its limitations, but it also has its real value as well. Sounds like the other work you're doing is equivalent to what's considered polysomnography in humans, which is when you have multiple electrodes studying brainwave activities directly. Do you like that comparison? Yeah, actually the Fitbit comparison is one of my absolute favorites. (laughs) And I've even kind of thought about trying to collect that data and somehow pair it with food consumption data, but Mm. they don't have that on the Fitbit yet. But yeah, absolutely excellent comparison. Okay, we have different ways to measure whether or not they're asleep. Then you wanted to look at what they were eating. So were you feeding them different quantities of food and different compositions of nutrients within the food they were given? Right. So the original finding, which was just that they slept more after eating, was just on a regular diet with sort of a normal amount of sugar and protein. When you want to see some of the subtleties, what you'll do is change things in a more dramatic way. And what we did was we first began to ask what nutrients drive this effect. So we started with sugar, which we really thought would have an effect because it seems to regulate long-term sleep. Mm-hmm. So an animal that's starved of sugar will wake up. But sugar didn't seem to have any fast effect. And when we started to ramp up protein, we saw actually a really nice effect as well as salt and Sort of the final one that we really expected and actually had a big effect was volume. So at the end of the day, it seemed like those components of food mm-hmm. made the animals more tired after eating and sugar sort of didn't seem to do anything. So that's something that I can relate with. I know when I have a big meal that can make me sleepy. And were you able to then explore what was happening internally in response to the big meal or the different compositions of the meal? So uh, I guess another reason we use fruit flies or model organisms in general is because whereas in humans, we can go into the fly and sort of turn off all the neurons in their brain and all of the molecular pathways, and we can begin to ask which one of these is responsible for driving this behavior. So we originally just went in and started turning off neurons one by one, looking for a defect. And what we found is that the homologue of human tachykinin neurons seem to be regulating the behavior. So basically, when you shut these neurons off, the flies no longer become tired after eating. When you mean homologue, you mean equivalent in the fruit fly to the gene that humans have. Right, right. Okay. So when we went back and looked, what are these neurons responding to? Is it just food intake in general, or is it a particular feature? And it it seemed that protein was actually affecting these neurons and turning them on. So what this really told us is that not only is there a neuron that responds to this specific component, but there are probably others responding to all the other components of food, and they all somehow integrate. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of interesting because in people, you sort of think, well, becoming tired after eating is this generalized response. Probably happens because blood is flowing out of our brains and to our stomach. But this told us that there are dedicated neurons or little electrical units that seem to trigger the sleep response. Yeah. You know, maybe they might exist in humans as well. That is super interesting. So I was a little surprised that the glucose didn't cause sleepiness 
because some of the work from Dennis Burdikoff shows that neurons that are fundamental to generating wake, hypocretinorexin system, are some neurons that are glucose inhibited. So in the presence of glucose, that'll decrease their activity. And the way that I describe hypocretin neurons is that they're almost like the symphony conductor telling other parts of the wake network when to be active. So people that have narcolepsy are missing hypocretin neurons and therefore they're sleepy all the time. So inhibiting those neurons would then cause drowsiness and sleepiness. So that makes sense to me. You have a big carbohydrate meal at lunch and then in the afternoon, you might feel more sleepy than if you had, let's say a salad and protein. But then again, you might've just had a lot more calories with a big carbohydrate lunch. So are you familiar with Dennis's work And were you surprised by that finding that sugars didn't cause sleepiness? Yeah, absolutely. So Dennis, among others, have definitely shown really great evidence that orexin neurons sense sugar intake and glucose in the blood. And what's interesting, and I'll just make note of this, is that some collaborators of ours found that the neurons that we were looking at also seemed to mediate wakefulness driven by a lack of sugar intake. Mm -hmm. So this sort of suggests that these function just like orexin neurons to wake us up when our blood glucose is low. But on the same note, just because these neurons don't show an effect in terms of sugar in the short term, they may also show it in the long term. And what that means to me is that orexin neurons probably function over a long period of time, but can also function very quickly in response to non-glucose mediated input. Mm. And something interesting to note, and you sort of mentioned it, is that if you take out orexin neurons, animals become narcoleptic. So that means that in any state, whether the animal is fed or starved, these neurons have to be firing a little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, if we don't eat for a while and our blood glucose is low, or if we've eaten a ton of food and our glucose is high, we don't just start passing out and becoming narcoleptic, right? Right, right. But I tend to think of orexin neurons now as a long-term steady state switch, which modulates sort of a very slow gradient of wakefulness. Mm-hmm but that they might also integrate these quick signals, something like protein or salt. And I can also mention some other things we started thinking about, Yeah, um, if you're interested. Please. So as soon as we saw that sugar had no effect, didn't mean that, that it wasn't like orexin neurons. It, it still could be, but it also could mean maybe it was analogous to something else. Mm-hmm. And, and there was recently this work by Stephen Liberlace up at Harvard that showed that basically vagus, the vagal neurons, which are really long fibers that connect our brain to our stomach. He found that these responded to volume and salt. And seeing that and knowing a little bit about the vagus nerve and how it indirectly connects to the sleep center of the brain, we thought, well, you know, maybe our neurons are more like this vagus Mm -hmm. nerve where they reach all the way to the stomach and they communicate this fast information. Mm -hmm. And this is not to say these don't interact with the rectal neurons and have some sort of a complex system function, but it sort of says that feeding can regulate sleep in a number of ways, not just blood glucose levels, right? And that makes so much sense to me. I mean, so many things in our body are, there's redundancy, there's multiple mechanisms that are working together or concert or in opposition to each other. And it's highly complex, but I have been interested myself to see the work looking at ion balance around neurons and how that influences their polarization or how active they are. There was some interesting work by Macon Nadergaard at University of Copenhagen that was published in the journal Science, I think earlier this year, but he was showing that just simply by altering the ion status, you could create 
a wake state or a sleep state and make an animal go to sleep usually when they wouldn't want to. And if you could alter the extracellular levels of potassium and calcium, magnesium, and hydrogen ions, then you could either make an animal go to sleep or make them wake up right away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Neurons is like a fundamental unit are just really sensitive to how much debris is just sitting outside the cell can change whether or not they fire, especially if it's something that's sort of meant to stimulate them. But in that same vein, I was originally thinking, well, salt content is just going to change how much any set of neurons are firing. Mm -hmm. So if you put it in the stomach and the stomach is projecting the sleep region, like for sure, salt could definitely make us tired. Mm -hmm. Not any different from that study showing it could happen locally in the brain. Was there something else too that you thought might be contributing to this effect of high salt diet? Do you think it's a component of the protein or is it a particular amino acid that is causing the effect or is it just overall protein intake? Great question. So we get asked that all the time and we did start looking into it. And of course, probably people would love for me to say that tryptophan is like especially potent in doing this, yeah. but that's not the case. In fact, it seems like it's peptides actually. And what a peptide is, is a medium complexity protein. Mm -hmm. So amino acids are the basic unit, which didn't seem to drive the effect. But for whatever reason, these medium chain and not even whole proteins, but these medium chains seem to drive the effect. And I think from what I can tell from someone else's data in my lab is that peptides, for whatever reason, are very easily transported across the gut membrane, mm. and they might be better able to signal our brain through whatever neurons that we should go to sleep, whereas whole proteins, they'll stay in the stomach until they're shredded down into these peptides. And right. for whatever reason, amino acids didn't seem to have an effect, even though we brought up Dennis earlier, and he had a study that showed that amino acids actually sort of inhibited the drive of orexin neurons. So again, we sort of thought, mm -hmm. well, maybe it's analogous to orexin neurons, but again, that seems not to be the case. Tell us a little bit more about the leukokinin system. So this is something that the fruit flies produce that is relevant to, is it tachykinin system in humans? So I'll tell you a little bit more about what we found with the leukokinin system. Great. And sort of the funny thing is, all these studies on leukokinin and sleep came out in a very wow. short period, all here in 2016. But at the same time we were working on our stuff, Justin Blau's lab up at New York University actually showed that leukokinin neurons, or at least the upstream cells, might be regulated by our internal circadian rhythm. So he showed that the sleep output was essentially an output of these cells. And we saw that and said, oh, well, that's pretty interesting. And since we found the same thing, maybe ours is the circadian-gated behavior. So when we actually went back and looked, we found that mm. the inhibitory effects on sleep that these upstream leukokinin neurons seem to have really occurred majorly when lights went off or like I guess you could say at dusk. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at any other time of the day, they didn't seem to have an effect. And even more interesting and sort of broad to that idea is that I've tried to think about the food coma and being tired after eating a lot of food. And it really could be a circadian thing because I know at some points in the day, like when I eat at lunch, like that hits me really hard. Yeah. But if I'll eat a lot for dinner, I don't seem to feel it quite so much. So I really do believe that the circadian component that we showed in our paper and that Justin showed in his is a very real thing. We have a natural dip in our circadian rhythm alertness drive in the afternoon, somewhere between two to four. So where the same meal that has a sleep-inducing effect eaten at noon wouldn't have a similar effect in what's called the wake maintenance zone that happens after that period. So your alertness drivers are most active in the evening. And so 
whatever sort of external signals that are coming into the body, their influence is going to be measured against the backdrop of whatever sort of alertness drive you have, what sort of sleep deprivation you've been experiencing, <laughs> right? So it's, again, pretty complex, but something that could promote sleepiness, put that in quotes, might make you more calm at some time of the day, and it might actually make you uh, want to really conk out in the middle of the afternoon. So that circadian component is really key. Yeah, right. Other people had identified some interesting work related to the circadian component of leukokinins. Tell us about how the leukokinin system was regulating the sleep state of the flies. So you mean like in an overarching sense of all the things that are integrated, or did you just mean in our study? Just in your study, what did you notice about its activity? And then you can give us your take about the overarching influence of how does that fit into the... Right, right. So it was essentially that there are downstream, so neurons that receive signals from leukokinin. We just really refer to them as leukokinin receptor neurons. And these seem to reach right into the main sleep center of the fly brain. And when you shut these off, the flies actually woke up from eating protein. So normally we would see that as we increased protein, the flies got more tired. But when you removed a single set of cells, there really weren't many, this response entirely flipped, which kind of suggested that protein actually has some sort of waking effect. Um, that was sort of masked by these neurons, which again really demonstrates the complexity of the system and how nothing's exactly clear. It's all things balancing each other out. And then we layered on top of that. So now we looked at one set of neurons that were upstream. These seem to be turned on just during a particular time of day, and they seem to shut down the response of LKR neurons in general. And we could really see that because when we simulated these neurons, in flies we can actually use temperature to turn neurons on and off we could actually completely suppress the animal's sleep after eating. No matter how much food we gave them or protein, the animals were perfectly awake after eating. And so again, there's just layers to this network. And this study only really begins to identify a few parts and lays them out as something for everybody to take a look at and create a comprehensive model. Of. Mm. And I'm sure in humans, hopefully the network starts to be more thoroughly looked at. It's yeah. probably going to be even more complex because the fly brain is on the order of hundreds of thousands of neurons, whereas, you know, the human is billions, right? In reading your paper, I did find that interesting that there was a thermogenic component to the sleep induction, which we all know that a drop in core body temperature is part of the sleep initiation process. And we see our core body temperature continue to decline to a nadir at some point during the night, somewhere around two to four in the morning, and how that can be really important for getting the depth of sleep and again, sleep initiating it. In fact, hearkening back to my conversation with Jerry Siegel, we talked about hunter-gatherer sleep and how their natural sleeping environment is probably colder than most westernized people. And how is that once you acclimate to being comfortable with, let's say, 55 to 65 degree temperatures in your room, quote unquote, might that actually enable deeper sleep? And then speculatively, did that enable these hunter-gatherer populations to get less sleep than was expected and even on the lower end of what's considered normal for humans? But I thought that that was interesting that some of these systems that we're talking about were stimulated by temperature. So how did you measure that, by the way? So I will say that our studies don't exactly show what you would fit. So originally we used just something called the trip channel, which is a temperature sensitive channel, which basically turns neurons on and off. So we were able to go in and turn on whatever neurons we wanted for whatever period we wanted. And by turning them on, we could see, well, what kind of behavioral effects do they have? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we could see what effect does temperature have on this behavior? And what we found, and this was interesting because again, a lot of our findings seem to be contradictory to long-term sleep, 
But it seems that the higher the temperature, the more pronounced this increase in sleep after eating became. And again, like you said, core body temperature drops as we sleep. And Mm -hmm. even uh, Leslie Griffith's lab, I'll mention, recently had a paper that showed that lower temperatures allowed flies to basically sleep better at night, you know, less during the day and more as if they should or how they would want to sleep given prey-predator interactions Mm -hmm. and, you know, how things might have evolved. But for our study, things just kept coming out different than we had expected, which really to me just means postprandial sleep or the food coma is different from long-term sleep and that maybe it's important only for a short window of time. Mm -hmm. So whatever rules we had about sleep, for now we can throw them out the window. What makes sense in a short period of time, like right after eating, and let's, you know, disregard total rules for the minute, Mm -hmm. sort of the way we've been thinking about it anyway. Really fascinating. I'm really glad to hear in the beginning, you said that you are interested in doing a lot more work on the subject. What are your next steps? The first thing that we're going after, so we identified a bunch of neurons in this paper, and there are a bunch that we don't even talk about, some that are volume selective and and so on. But one of the neurons we found, which we really don't know anything about, were another set of circadian selective neurons. And we're going to go in some elaboration to figure out why are they time selective, what kind of inputs to the sleep region do they have, and just elucidate the circuit a little bit more. And on another branch, which I think is a little bit more interesting to most people, is why are we tired after we eat a food, and, and why are we tired after we eat even more? Why does this effect scale up? And we have two theories at the moment, and maybe you can comment and let me know your thoughts. And one which we definitely, or at least I definitely am a huge proponent of, is memory. Mm. So we know in mammals and flies that there's a short period of time after we learn something that if we go to sleep, we are much more likely to remember it. And this makes evolutionary sense because if an animal has to go way out of its way to find food and it's been starving for a while, it eats a ton of food, it passes out, it remembers mm-hmm. sort of the experience of getting there. You know, what did I smell? What did I see? Mm-hmm. And things like that. And the other avenue that we're thinking, and this has been postulated in theoretical papers, is what about nutrient absorption? Is there something about being asleep that aids in, in our gut absorbing nutrients, mm-hmm. whether or not it's energy moving towards the gut to allow us to absorb protein, or whether or not it's just simply if your intestines are shaking around and moving, maybe you're going to be excreting more or just basic physics don't allow for absorption to occur quite as well. Mm-hmm. So those are the two functional avenues we've begun testing. And I think it, they should make for some really interesting papers. One thing that's become increasingly clear to me over the last couple of years is this, the real elegance of energy coordination depending on the time of day and energy needs and usage. And so it makes a lot of sense where if you have a big meal, your body's going to want to focus its resources on processing it. So that does make sense to me. This might be apocryphal, but my mentor, Jed Black, who is the director of the Stanford Sleep Clinic for almost 15 years, he does some work in the pharmaceutical industry trying to develop medications for narcolepsy. And he worked in Switzerland. And so living over there was a different cultural experience. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how looking in some of the older historical texts from his children's reading, they noticed that supper was actually more in the middle of the day and it was the biggest meal of the day. And obviously we have a siesta, which in so many cultures, that is a common behavior. And we have virtually eliminated it now, although some of the more forward-thinking companies are working it back into the mix. But maybe there's just a certain amount of hippocampal recording that can take place of trying to take in your environment and all the things that it's learning before it's optimal to sleep, just like you said, for the consolidation of memory. So I think both are 
plausible ideas to explore. Yeah, you've raised an interesting point, which I hadn't thought about. So I, I've heard from like friends who have visited Europe and, and Spain and so on. And, and they've said, oh, yeah, over there, like everybody sleeps right after lunch. This yeah. is a common practice. Like, you know, nobody questions it here. That's blasphemy. We can't do that. So this would have been an old practice, right? And we still experience it. So it's still part of our physiology, right? Mm -hmm. If an old practice that was more based on our general physiology would be to eat a ton more in the middle of the day, then this whole food coma thing, mm. it sounds like it was something intended by nature that we have actively fought as hard as we can to get away from for good reasons. Like you know, really don't want your employees sleeping during the day, Yeah, but it definitely happens. So it's interesting that you brought that up. The peak light exposure for the hunter-gatherer populations that he studied was about 9 a.m. Then they would seek shade at around noon because it was the hottest time of day. So that also aligns with being more quiescent, not as active, being in shade, making a big meal, then relaxing while it's hottest. So it coordinates with <laughs> the environmental exposures and yeah. trying to optimize foraging activities and limiting exposure to the hottest time of day. So yeah, I think we're coming up with an interesting model here. Here. Yeah. I'll say one more thing that's interesting that you brought up is middle of the day, humans are looking for shelter to avoid the sun and the heat. And interestingly enough, fruit flies do the very same thing. So they're, maybe they're higher ranked than they should be, but there's some papers that went very high just by showing flies seem to prefer being under like a bridge environment in the middle of the day. Mm. So again, you know, you're not convinced fruit flies are a good model for sleep. Mm -hmm. There are all these weird intricacies that really make them feel kind of human. I can't wait to see what results you come up with next to help us better understand these interesting aspects of human physiology through the lens of a fruit fly. Thanks for all the great work you do. And maybe I can bring you back on in the future to talk about what you've discovered next. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Keith. Have a great one. You too. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.